Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2009. And I see you, bro. The movie, Avatar. everyone and welcome to unspooled. unspooled where we unspool the most famous films of all time to find out if they truly deserve to be called classics or if they are just remembered that way that was paul Shear, comedian brainiac marvelous person oh paul i adore you well, I think you are amazing. And who do I think is amazing? Well, it's just Amy Nicholson, who writes for The New York Times, is a James Cameron file, I think, maybe. I mean, we'll see. I mean, you definitely have some issues with Cameron, and we're going to get into those today. I think uh, issues is right. I think I should schedule a better help meeting just to talk about how my feelings about James Cameron. Well, I'm excited to break into this movie because... Avatar is a movie that I've had a lot of conflicting opinions on, and I realized that it was really based in the fact that I haven't seen it in 13 years. I put it behind uh, a door, and an opinion grew really out of nothing else. I feel the same way. I basically saw this movie in 2009 and then locked it away in a cryotube. And, you know, when you break something out of a cryotube, it sure feels like drinking a lot of tequila. Part of being conflicted about this movie, I think, stems from the casting. You know, James Cameron has created iconic roles for beloved actors. And in this film, I think he might have missed the mark on some of his casting. We'll get into that. Can this man be too ambitious? Can Daddy Cameron be too ambitious? Well, with that being said, Amy, let's from Wanet. That is, Navi for report on it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, it's the guy. That's Navi for Begin. Ooh. The year is 2009, and it has been 12 years since James Cameron directed the biggest blockbuster in the world. How has he followed up Titanic? Well, 
He hasn't. James Cameron has not released a fiction film in over a decade. He's just been making documentaries on deep sea diving with even more visits to the Titanic. Some people are saying he won't make another movie again, that he can't make another movie after Titanic, that no one, not even James Cameron, can top that. But yet there are others, right, who are out there saying, no, 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 he's actually working on something even more ambitious, something he's been dreaming of since the 90s. No, 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 not the 90s, since the 70s. No, 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 before he ever made a movie. And it's something about computer animation and and giant blue women, the plot no one knew. Cameron claimed he was working on something, but this mystery movie keeps on getting pushed back. And maybe it won't ever even happen. And even if it does, it's probably going to be an overambitious, expensive disaster, which is, of course, what people have said about him during the making of Titanic. And Avatar, in fact, does have a plot. You might have forgotten it. I totally had. But it goes something like this. Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, is a Marine. He lives on this dying, tech-obsessed future Earth, and he has lost the use of his legs. He's also lost his twin brother, Tommy, this brilliant scientist who was randomly just murdered for money. Uh, His brother was supposed to fly to a planet called Pandora on this peacekeeper mission that's led by Dr. Grace Augustine. That's Sigourney Weaver. And their mission is to befriend the indigenous population of Pandora called the Na'vi. How? By merging their minds with lab-grown Na'vi avatars. So while their earthling selves lie in tubes like they're asleep, their 12-foot-tall alternate blue selves will roam Pandora and hopefully hang out with locals. The locals, by the way, the Na'vi call this kind of uh, avatar a dreamwalker. Jake, because of DNA, winds up taking his dead brother's place and he becomes an avatar. He loves getting a pair of working Na'vi legs. He falls for the chieftain's daughter, Nertiri. She's played through motion capture by Zoe Saldana. He learns to care about the environment and he is forced to decide who he's going to fight for. Is he going to fight for his new Navi friends or is he going to fight for his human bosses like Stephen Link's Colonel Korich, these earthling colonels who want to decimate Pandora in order to obtain a mineral called unobtainium? Take a listen. You Jake Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'd be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Na'vi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit, and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war, and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. Avatar comes out December 18th, 2009, and beats Titanic as the highest-grossing movie of all time. It made $2.79 billion at the box office and held on to its number one status for 10 years until it was just dethroned by Avengers Endgame. Side note, in response, Avatar was re-released in China, made another $150 million, and then took out Avengers to reclaim number one. In the petty box office wars, you gotta call that uh, an A-plus move. Uh, again, In response to making the biggest hit in the world, what happens to James Cameron? Well, 
he disappears for another 13 years to make more Avatar movies. And we are now in that future. 13 years later, the sequel is out. We're going to leave that over here. But wow, it's been a journey. (laughs) We're going to have to do a a mini bonus episode on the sequel because I have seen it. I'm going to be trying to keep my lips very, very tight. There will be no spoilers in this. We are staying strictly in the past. What was in the zeitgeist on December 18th, 2009, when Cameron welded the crown of success to his forehead? Well, it was a song about how life is all about how you imagine life to be. It's a song about turning concrete into your jungle dreams. It is a song that literally includes the line, quote, you should know that I bleed blue. It is Jay-Z and Alicia Keys and Empire State of Mind. Very tenuous connection, Amy, but I tenuous. love it. Tenuous? I bleed blue? How much, oh, more, come how much on. more zeitgeisty can you get? We don't know that they bleed blue. They are blue. Blue-blooded. We don't Blue-blooded. bleed. Okay, well, concrete New jungle. York, concrete jungle. Concrete jungle. Where this dreams, is not dreams are made. Oh, boy, oh, boy. All right, I, I appreciate it. But, Amy, I got to tell you, I want to walk back before this movie comes out because I need to tell you about my connection to it. July 2009, James Cameron comes into Hall H at Comic-Con. I happen to be in the audience and debuts footage of Avatar, gives everyone in Hall H 3D glasses to watch a sequence from the film. And sitting there in that audience, knowing nothing about this film, knowing just that it was a James Cameron movie And at that point, I felt like, ah, 3D, what's 3D? Like, I didn't feel like it was going to be that spectacular. It knocked my fucking socks off. I mean, sitting there watching that, it was truly this moment where you're like, oh, I've seen the future. Like, everything now will be this. And it was very much a non-descriptive part of the film. Like, you didn't really know what the movie was going to be about, but it just looked unbelievable. And the excitement was truly, truly palpable. And then I'm one of those people who goes and sees this movie on opening weekend in New York City and just like jaw dropped the entire time watching and feeling like, oh my gosh, I can see the texture of that box. And Like, I've never seen 3D like this. I feel like I'm in it. I feel like I'm in a Walt Disney World ride. And I left that theater and I was like, that was an amazing experience. And then somehow, from that moment of leaving the theater fully satisfied, I have very much verbally uh, said time and time again, duh, Avatar sucks. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why... I could go enjoy a film in such a way and then just feel like, oh, it's stupid. It's dumb. And this is something I've really wrestled with for a long time because those two reactions to the footage and the actual film were, yeah, A++. Couldn't beat it. Loved it. 
left excited, left like ready for it, never wanted to watch it again, never did watch it again. But yet, I don't know if it's popular opinion or internet culture, but I am of the opinion that Avatar sucks. Now that's before today's episode. I want to talk to you about it, but that's where I come in to Avatar to this day. What about you? Uh, well, for me, in 2009, I was the editor of an exhibition mag. You know, like exhibition mag, meaning it was a, a film magazine written for people who own movie theaters. And so if you were a person who owned a movie theater, if you were a person in like kind of the interested in the side of that business, you know, like, what are you putting on screen? What are audiences going to see? What are you investing in? The only thing people had been talking about for years was Avatar. Uh, because it was all about 3D. Like the main tenet of that magazine in 2009 was we needed to convince every single person who went to movie theater that they had to invest in 3D screens, 3D glasses, that 3D movies were going to change everything. You know, from Step Up 3D to My Bloody Valentine 3D to, you know, then the push into high frame rate, which is where they really just kind of lost everybody. And I will say that was a tricky time for my moral compass because I wasn't convinced that 3D was the future. And we were really, really having to be like, no, 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 do it, man. Buy these systems, buy these systems. I bought a TV that was 3D. I yeah. had the goggles and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was really a moment. And then everybody was like, this is going to collapse, isn't it? And it was like, no, it's totally not. But it absolutely did. It absolutely collapsed. But at that point in 2009, every single interview with any director we ran was like, 3D is it. All the movies are going to be made in 3D. All the dramas are going to be made in 3D. All the comedies, all the romances, everything is going to be 3D. And then it really just turned out that everybody went to see Avatar and then nobody ever watched a 3D movie pretty much ever again after that. Which, in a way, like going to see the new Avatar in a screening last night didn't as much feel like the future as it felt like a throwback. Like, oh man, here we go again. I'm sitting down. They're giving me my glasses. Oh, maybe I should have chosen seeing this at a different theater because... I get, I don't know, you were talking about like your heavy 3D glasses. I get really into like, I used to really know what theaters had the 3D screens I liked and what didn't because there's two different types of 3D screens. One is silver, one is white. And um, I really only liked the theaters that use the real D system where the glasses yeah. are super lightweight, like like basically play sunglasses. And I hated the ones that are like the Dolby heavy 3D. Oh, I can't stand them. When I was a it, kid growing up in New York, I would go to the big Sony IMAX screen where they would do these 3D. They weren't even films. They just felt like experimental shorts. They were all about like 40 minutes. It was like Val Kilmer is a World War II pilot flying through the Andes. And it was much more to see the scope of 3D. It's when IMAX cameras were so big. I actually saw them shooting one of them in Washington Square Park. And it was just like balloons are going up in the air. It was like an elevated version of 3D. But the movies were crap. The headset was like headache inducing. I would argue that you know, besides Step Up 3D, which is a masterwork, and... It's an absolute masterwork. Jackass 3D, which I think used 3D to the proper... Uh, also a masterwork. Yeah, you know, to the proper way uh, to kind of elicit different responses. Uh, it was a trying time because a lot of films were being shot and converted to 3D, right? And this is a movie that was intended for you to see it in 3D. The technology was different, and not all, but a majority of them I felt like were these very much regular films that then were trying to basically profit off of you paying five or $10 more to go see it 3D. Well, yeah. And also the buzzword at the time was that this contemporary 3D 
was going to be the sophisticated 3D. Like everybody mm-hmm. was talking about proscenium 3D, where the idea is the screen is a stage. It's still got the rigorous boundaries, but the 3D goes backwards, like beyond the screen. So it's like you're looking deep past the screen. And this was supposed to be the sophisticated move as compared to like the 70s 3D, the Jaws 3 3D, you know, in the 80s where like Jaws is coming at you at the screen. Right. It was supposed to recede and not come forward. And to me, I always felt like, what? No, my favorite 3D movies are the ones where it come at you, that the jackasses and the step up 3Ds. And that to me is one of the interesting things in the design of Avatar, which is it is mostly classy proscenium 3D. But then every so often at the beginning, he's like, I'm going to put a golf ball right at the screen. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Where do you fall in this movie? As a James Cameron a file? I mean, I, I, I know that you've definitely, you know, beat the drum for Titanic, but... Where do you fall in the world of the way that Avatar has been received? We're talking about a movie that is number one. It is a technical marvel, but I would posit that the idea around Avatar, I don't think that people revere it the way that I would even say people revere Avengers Endgame. Like Avengers Endgame, when people talk about it, like, oh, that was amazing. They they pulled it all together. It was this big thing. You know, there's there's a talk about it. There's a a real dismissiveness to Avatar, or it has been in the 12, 13 years since it's been made? Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a a split response, a very bifurcated response to this, which is there is a part of me that will always admire, perhaps even worship James Cameron in a way that I feel uncomfortable saying. I don't even like calling myself a fan of most directors. I like saying I admire their work. But there is something in who James Cameron is and what he represents in cinema that I actually am astonished by. He is sort of a godlike figure, I feel like, in modern cinema, in which he is the person who's like, I have a dream and I'm going to see if I can make this art form catch up to my dreams. Like we need a James Cameron kind of figure in every art form to push, to prod. You know, we need it's like we need a Frank Gehry in architecture to be like, did you know metal can ripple? That's who he is. He's like the innovator who pushes the form forward. And, or I guess maybe I should say that's who he is today because that isn't who he was thought of necessarily in like, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s. It's not until like Terminator 2 when he starts really kind of positioning himself as this guy. And 
And because of that, that makes me feel like this innate protectiveness of him. You know, like we need to leave space for the James Camerons of the world to do what they need to do and also leave space for it to flop. You know, like let them innovate and then we take what they've learned and we adapt from it. It's like, it's like NASA building a rocket that goes to Venus and then crashes. And we're like, okay, what can we learn from this rocket that crashes? How can we do it better? That is the role of what a James Cameron could be. It's just then his movies keep making so much money that then there's this like tie between innovation and profit that can't last forever. So I feel in, I feel one way about it like this, like I want to leave room for the James Cameron's of the world to make Avatar. But then I also feel like Avatar is so boring. Oh my God, what are we doing? Like this, like for a man who thinks so much about how the bugs will look and how the, how the plants will like ripple when they close, the plot of this movie is so basic that it makes me also see not just the heights to which Cameron aspires, but the insults that people throw at him that I've always defended him from. James Cameron can't write dialogue. That's the big one. Like when we did our Titanic episode, everyone was like, that movie can't write dialogue. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I love the dialogue. And I genuinely do. But Avatar, oh my God, every time anybody talks, I just want to die. Watch me, man. I'm going to do the funky chicken. I'm like, what? What? What is he reaching for? Like right from the beginning when you have, um, when you have like uh, Stephen Lang as his colonel, you know, kind of giving his like big speech about, you know, welcome to, to Pandora. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. If there is a hell, you might want to go there for some R&R after a tour on Pandora. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. I mean, like, two things about that. The first is saying not on Kansas anymore. I kind of appreciate that as like a sly wink to, to James Cameron saying... You know, when Wizard of Oz turned from black and white to color, that was a huge moment for the film industry. And now you are in mine. I've turned our two-dimensional world into this one. Welcome to Avatar, bitch, is kind of how I think of him saying that. But also, then Stephen Lang is like, juju bees for eyes. And I'm like, wait, what? Oh, an old man also wrote this. Who eats juju bees? Do the people of the future eat juju bees? What a weird reference. Couldn't you think of any other candy? I don't even know offhand what a juju bee looks like, Grandpa. What are you talking about? I actually re-looked up jujubes. They're much smaller than I thought. But really, jujube, that's what you're going to reach for in your dialogue? I think I had a lot of these opinions as well. But re-watching it, I was like, oh, this is like the Bud Light of movies. It goes down pretty smooth. It may not be the perfect thing, but... God damn, it moves fast and you're in and yes, the plot is simple. And then it made me start to think, well, this is James Cameron across the board. When you look at Titanic, it's a simple plot. You know, it, his movies are so big that I think they can only contain a very basic plot because it's easier to follow. And, and the way that I will kind of drill down on that a little bit more is by saying, when you look at Transformers, of the first one, the, you know, it's so hard to understand what the fuck is going on. It's like, I'm watching buildings blow up. I don't know who I'm rooting for. It's CGI creatures are crashing into each other. And here 
The action is so clean and clear. I know who I'm rooting for. I know who the good guys are. I know who the bad guys are. And there's a simplicity to it. And there's an there's a world built around it that makes it so fascinating. And the way that I kind of think about it is it's like looking at somebody's model train um, display. It's like, oh my God, look at this. You you have the tower and oh, and the old burnt out factory. Oh, and look at that. You know, it, when it goes there, it switches tracks and the, those people are looking like they're running for the train. I'm so blown away by it. And then when I leave that display, I'm like, yeah, that was cool, but I have no respect for it. Like I, like I had respect for it when I'm looking at it and living in it. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie. Like watching it again after 13 years, I was like, I'm riveted. I'm in. I, I enjoyed all the action. I, I agree with you. The dialogue is trash. Unobtainium is stupid, but it doesn't hit me weird in the thing. It just kind of plays. I think where I start to feel it and where I think this movie maybe fails a little bit is in the casting because Stephen Lang is phenomenal. He's great. He's a great bad guy. I want to see him more, but everybody else besides Sigourney Weaver, I think is a little lackluster. And in other James Cameron movies, your leads are so engaging and there's something about it where I'm like, if I'm looking for something to critique, that's where I'm, I'm kind of focusing on for this movie is I feel like, yes, the dialogue is bad, but maybe somebody who could do that dialogue better would elevate it. And we wouldn't notice it that much. Like DiCaprio and Winslet can elevate dialogue. Same for Billy Zane, you know, Schwarzenegger, not saying that he's one of the best actors, but he definitely knows his persona can elevate something, you know, and uh, Linda Hamilton, obviously phenomenal. I, I just was looking at it and going, I think that that might be part of it. Is there, the movie is the lead actor in a way. Like we don't have anything else to put on top of it. Well, okay. A few things. One, I love that you just called this a Bud Light because it made me think of this moment in the movie. For a light beer. <laughs> Blue jeans. There's nothing that we have that they want. Everything they sent me out here to do is a waste of time. <laughs> I guess he knows. I guess he knows he is a a very profitable domestic beer. Uh, two, second thing, unobtainium. When I started to rewatch this movie, yes, I was being like, oh my God, that's the dumbest thing ever. And then I did some research on unobtainium. And as dumb as it sounds... He is not to blame for inventing that word. That word of unobtainium was invented in the 1950s. Scientists came up with it to to kind of have a way of describing materials that would be perfect for a thing they were trying to do if only they existed. You know, so it's like, oh, if we just could find an element that did this, we could build this thing. So they came up with this word unobtainium as a way of kind of placing this idea out there of when we find this, we can do this. And they called it other things too. They called it like impossibrium. And raritanium and one of my favorite one of my favorite shirts that I had was a um, a blue shirt that had the periodic table on it and it had unobtainium as one of the elements <laughs> and it just was that's all it was it was a very niche small shirt that I loved wearing so much because it just sounds dumb even even though it's based in 
something real, it sounds stupid. It just sounds stupid. <laughs> it's like we're trying to obtain something that is unobtainable. Like it's, and I get it. <laughs> totally. And actually, Avatar isn't even the first film to use the word unobtainium. That was actually the core. The core also had a, a mineral called unobtainium. Here, listen. What do you call this material? Well, its real name has 37 syllables. I call it unobtainium. Yeah. Unobtainium. Mm -hmm. And when, as you bring that to my attention, I have to also say, well, this is where Cameron is kind of frustrating because you want to like dig on him and you want to go, you can't write dialogue. That thing is dumb. But at the same time, you go, holy shit, this guy built a world, built a world in a way where it feels like many a notebook were were filled with every law of the land, very much like George R.R. Martin, like this Game of Thrones world. Um, and I will say like the language that he created, a thousand words that were easy for actors to speak, but didn't sound anything like the human language. Like these things go, well, can't be, well yeah okay sure like I, I i'm an idiot now why am i picking on something and not just going holy shit holy shit holy shit because but you're not but you're not though because i think your point was exactly right about the cast you know like i cry at the end of terminator 2 when 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 arnold schwarzenegger goes into the lava and i cry I cry all over Titanic. I cry when an elderly couple holds each other in bed and they don't even get to talk. They don't even get to that. say any of his dialogue. He is capable of making me cry. In this movie, there is something in the performances that whenever they get emotional, I'm still not crying. And 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 it's weird because I'm watching this and this time around I'm thinking, you know, Zoe Saldana as Neytiri, honestly kind of not bad. I think I no, actually I like her Neytiri. Yes. Her, the way her, she hisses at everything. Mm -hmm. I, oh my gosh. I just, I love the hiss. How does it feel to betray your own race? <laughs> I love her posture. You know, it's such like a physical performance. The way she kind of moves and thinks. I love that she really does come across on screen as an individual character who has their complete own way of thinking. You're right. Not even just the way of language, but like her own philosophy. Like you have that scene early on where she rescues him from being attacked by like, I don't know what to call them. The those beetle rhinos cats. Or yeah, the those battle cats. Yeah. Battle cats. Yeah. She like saves him from the battle cats. And, and instead of it being like a scene of whoo, you did it. You know, he's trying to play it out like, like the way you would like, oh man, thank you. And she's like, absolutely not. Just, hey, slow down. But I just want to say thanks for killing those things. Ah, damn. Don't thank you don't thank for this. This is sad. Very sad only. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Whatever I did, I am sorry. Well, this is your fault. They did not need to die. My fault? They attacked me. How am I the bad guy? Your fault! Hey, woo. Your fault. Easy, easy. You're like a baby. Making noise, don't know what to do. Easy. Well, she's also upset that he's upset the balance of life, which I thought was right. a really, you know, interesting thing. Like this movie is very easy to see what the metaphors are, but you know, in a way, I, I think it, it's a it's a really great. I hate using this term, but a meat cute. It is a meat cute, but it's also done in a different way. She's a much stronger presence and personality. 
She is. And I think she delivers this new way of thinking about an action scene like this in a movie with, you know, conviction. So good for her. But also, I ha- oh God, I'm just going to say this out loud. But also every time I look at her on screen, I'm like, does she have nipples? You know, and my brain just goes there because it's so much about the design that I'm just like, Oh, but does she got does she got titties? What's happening over there? Yeah, she does got titties because I mean, this is the craziest thing about this is you know, Cameron insisted that Natiri should have breasts because he wanted her to look hot from a human's point of view. Yeah, no, I um, found this interview that he did with Playboy magazine where he said to Playboy magazine, quote, right from the beginning, I said she's got to have tits. Even though that makes no sense because the Navi are not placental mammals. So right. he's like, I know their whole genetic origin, but also she's got to have titties. And he said that when he was designing it with his animators, basically the he would he said, basically the crude question he would ask his designers, his all-male crew of designers, uh, was, would you want to do it? And they would say, no, take the gills out. And so they would take the gills out and they would refine this character until she was hot. And... And so, yeah, she's delivering this beautiful speech about the value of life and about respecting life and about not putting yourself in a situation where other people are going to have to die because you're stupid. And yet, if this scene was more compelling, I think I wouldn't be thinking about, does she have titties? And so, like, it's I blame the story for making me get distracted with these questions. I was never thinking, does she have titties? You, no. I call nonsense on it. You never were thinking about her titties. Amy, not until you mentioned it right now have I ever thought about it. And doing my research in it, I read that quote, but I was like, is that a big deal? I mean, she's just like a naked creature who walks. She looks, I mean, the you weren't like, Navi. Does her tail cover up a butt crack? You weren't even thinking that. Is there, the way that her tail kind of magically is always covering the up. The tail butt. grosses me out. I mean, when he steps on someone's tail. Yeah, I mean, look, they're, like the tail was a little bit more distracting, but I'm just looking at these creatures that I didn't like get horny or not horny or anything. I just am looking at these creatures that look very much like humans. And after years of Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, it's like, yeah, I get it. Like they are still human bodies. Like they're bigger. Sure. But like, there's nothing aggressively different. Like all the animals on the planet, everything else is so unique. And like, we're talking about these insect, toyed rhinoceroses or whatever they are like those are all like whoa i've never seen anything but this is like yeah you're just a blue person you're like a blue a bluey like i don't know i mean i'm not to the point where i'm like it didn't distract me because i was expecting it and so the you know the 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 oddly placed loincloth i mean to me the more distracting thing is like sigourney weaver wearing a headband as a navi like oh, I was cargo like, what shorts. It, yeah, car- she's, like, what oh, is she's this? like, wait, no, everybody in Navi land has to know I went to Stanford. <laughs> I just feel like <laughs> there are these things. And what I think I rail on a lot in modern day, like big budget cinema is how do you get into a world? How do you do world building? And I think the answer has been for the most part. We set up the world in the first movie and then we deliver on it in the second film. And there's something about this movie where in the first 10 minutes, James Cameron gets out everything you need to know, puts you in a completely different world, holds your hand, but at the same time trusts you to run with it and you get it. And I think that the simplicity of the dialogue, the simplicity of the plot is the reason why we're there. He's not hand wringing. He's not treating you super dumb. 
there is something really wonderful and awe-inspiring about, wow, like we are in. Like this movie starts and we are in it. And in it in a way where the plot is going. We get it. We get the stakes. And, you know, for a big blockbuster, I started to think like, okay, dialogue's bad. Well, I love Fast and Furious, right? I, 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 I love those movies. No one's sitting around making those comparisons about those movies. No one's saying, well, I don't even remember the plot of Fast and Furious 4. It's like, yeah, no one does because it doesn't make a difference. Like it Wait, doesn't make a difference. I kind of do, at least when it comes to six and seven and eight. Okay, like well, four is the one in Mexico. But I mean, and, you and remember like little things. Friendship, one more time, I'm going to die. Family. But uh, but oh, I yeah. guess... <laughs> Sorry. But, <laughs> but again, that, that's my point. Like, we don't like obsess over these things. I think we connect to these big budget films, you know, or these big budget films of the last 20 years, because I'm not going to put the ETs in there and stuff, more about how it made us feel. Like, again... What's Jurassic Park? Eh, Jurassic Park is great actors doing something that's like rounds a movie where it's just basically like, and dinosaurs are loose. That's it. Like, you know, and it's, I just think that we are holding this film up to a standard. And I don't know if that's because, and then believe me, I don't want to be an avatar apologist here, but I, I left, I left this movie going, oh shit, I can't wait to see the new one. But because I remember that James Cameron's good at giving me a movie theater experience. And part of those experiences are just raw emotion. Wow, the majesty of this. Okay, great. Like I'm not, I'm not picking it apart, but because he elevates himself and because this movie is number one and because it's never been done before, we start to look at it differently. And I'm wondering if there's an argument to be made here where it's like, can't you just make a $500 million movie that is popcorn and stupid that engages every possible person that wants to see it? Well, I think the one issue with that is that this movie doesn't want to be seen as stupid. This movie has a lot to say about how we're treating the environment. And I think this movie has a self-seriousness like- about it that I think is kind of it's clashing with my ability to take it as a dumb movie. It's so base, though. It's so like, it's the so like we took. Worse. Well, I guess like <laughs> it's like the. I guess it's like, you know, hey, we got to protect our Earth because you know, Mother Earth. What we put into it, we get back from it. It's so fucking dumb. But, but in a weird way, I don't expect it to be higher level than that. And I think what what you're putting on it is. It's intending it to be like a bigger message, but isn't a message like that better served in a big, dumb movie in a very bite-sized way? I mean, it's a story about how we colonized America. It's a story about how we treat Earth. It's a story about climate change. I mean, it's, but it's, it's, also it feels to it's me a, like very much a story about like Afghanistan, like people coming to a mm -hmm. territory they don't understand Trying to, what they keep using words like pacify the natives is how they're like describing it. You know, I mean, even in this scene, the way they describe like even the good version of what they're doing on Pandora sounds like they're talking about the Afghan occupation. The last thing I need is another trigger happy moron out there. Look, look, you're supposed to be winning the hearts and the minds of the natives. Isn't that the whole point of your little puppet show? If you look like them and you talk like them and they'll start trusting us. We build them a school. We teach them English. But after what? How many years? Relations with the indigenous are only getting worse. Yeah, that tends to happen when you use machine guns on them. But again, I think you could bring this back to 
Columbus, right? Like, I mean, it, it's been going on forever, right? And I think that w- through war, we've had a lot of pictures about war and a lot of pictures about pictures. I'm Robert Evans, and I love these pictures. But we've had a lot of movies that really um, tell the story, you know, in different ways. Like, oh, there are actually other people there, and there were other people there. And, and this is a really interesting movie because I do think, um, unlike Alien, Z, with the S as a dollar sign, which we proved to be not a real thing that he did. But unlike aliens, like this movie is saying, well, what are the aliens? Like it, it's an interesting counterpoint to what he's made before. It's like, well, wait, 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 what is the other side of this? We, we know like Linda Hamilton is trying to, you know, stop the machines, but maybe what's the machine's point of view? Like this movie yeah. goes like, what is the Navi's point of view? And I think that that as a filmmaker, it's an interesting twist, you know, hundred percent. But I, I would argue that like, the top 11 movies of all time, Avatar, Avengers, Endgame, Titanic, The Force Awakens, Infinity War, No Way Home, Jurassic World, The Lion King, uh, the live action one, Avengers, oh. Furious 7, and Top Gun Maverick. None of these are smart movies, but they all are like maybe a little bit trying to say something, a little, little bit, you know, I mean, or whatever their, whatever their emotional like whatever their thematic element is, is pretty base. True. But I might say that this feels even more base than base. Although you're right about that point about like, who are the aliens? I mean, that's one of the last lines in this movie. You know, they, the Navi, of course, chase off the Skywalkers or whatever they call them. And they send, quote unquote, the aliens home to their dying world. You know, like really driving home the case that this is this is an alien invasion movie, basically. This from is Starship Troopers. It's point the of view. flip. Yeah, right. I mean, what we talked about in Starship Troopers, like we're getting to see the other side, which I think I was responding to as well. But this is also, you know, Verhoeven is making his point about like war and about fascism. And I think James Cameron is making his point hey guys, I'm a vegan. Let me tell you why I'm a vegan. Let me talk about why we need to protect the earth from these like marine bros. You know, like Jake Sully shows up on this planet with, oh, bless him, a tribal tattoo, you know? And I, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know what I want the tribal tattoo to signify, you know? Is that his or is that like a movie choice? It's, I would hope it's a movie choice. I think it's a movie choice. I mean, I'm more than willing to, to Google no, now it's going to sound like a creep. I was, I was going to say I'm more than willing to Google topless pictures of him, but then I didn't mean that to sound like a creep. And then I figured I already just talked about Navi tales and I need to stop. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, is this tribal tattoo like he's just some bro? Or is this tribal tattoo like I'm open to seeing what other cultures have for me and I want to get in touch with my roots? I want to interpret his tribal tattoo in both ways, I guess. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Like, to me, my favorite moments of this movie, of his performance in this movie, are just seeing the Marine pop out of the body of a of a navvy of just seeing this guy who looks you know otherworldly call up call the rhino monster a bitch yeah come on what you got oh yeah who's bad that's right yeah that's what i'm talking about bitch that's right get your punk ass back to mommy yeah i hated that moment that i, I am talking about i don't care don't care that one felt so this movie does no oh. <laughs> attempt to like hide the tw- the 2009 verbiage. And I know we talked about Jujubees, right? But that moment, especially, I was like, ugh, ugh. Oh. Well, then, boy, do I have good news for you about the sequel. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> but you see, this is what you get when you spend 13 years making a movie and you're not living out in the world. It's like uh, the Tulsa King all over again. It's like, how can you be a contemporary when you're not living in that world? You're just under sea and you're, you know, you're in these water tanks in Australia. Yeah, it's like he's imagining what Marines are like when it's been a really long time since he's hung out with them. Because you're it, it, in Aliens, we have this Marine platoon of people. We have Sigourney Weaver. And it feels a little bit more lived in. Like, right. I believe that he knows what this dynamic is like. In here, it feels like his mood has soured. And now he's like, I guess they just have tribal tattoos. And they're like, that rhino's a bitch, bro. And I don't even feel like, I guess what I feel about Sam Worthington is like, yes, he's a former Marine. He's a little bitter because they won't pay to fix his legs. And his brother was a PhD student. But I don't really even know if that's his attitude at that point. Like, I, like he's a hard... I don't want to, like, come out swinging on Sam Worthington, but I do feel like I'm not fully understanding who this character is. When you put, you know, Sigourney Weaver at the center of a movie in Aliens, I get her point of view. I don't get his point of view. I get him sticking up for defensive people at the end. But before that, his character is a little ill-defined. Is he bitter? Is he not? Is, you know, where is he? And it it's done a lot through voiceover, but sometimes the voiceover is self-conscious because that's how it's written to be. Like, you know, but it, I don't yeah, like know. When he who says I, that his brother died for, quote, the paper in his wallet. I'm like, did you just become Humphrey Bogart? What? I know. I'm you're like, you're what talking about talk? money? <laughs> And and so there is a part of me that just feels like I don't connect to him. I honestly don't connect to him. I connect to him in the most basic way. Like there's that great thing that Red Letter Media did. I always reference this, which is um, describe Qui-Gon Jinn without using the term Jedi. And, you know, people are like, uh, huh. you know, people are stuck because it's like he is a conduit for something, but he's not like, I don't know who that character is. And I do feel like this character is the centerpiece of this movie. And I don't know what the fuck he stands for. I don't know who he is. I don't know what I, what I like or what I don't like about him. All I know is that he's kind of, he, I don't even think he gets redeemed. I don't even think he gets redeemed. I don't think he even knows there there's, if he was a gung ho Marine, 
who got his legs, you know, knocked off by a Navi and had to come back because his brother and him shared the DNA and he fucking wanted to kill these Navi. But it's just sort of like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Ah, whatever, whatever. It's like, even when he runs for that first time as he gets into his uh, Navi body, I'm like, is that what you had? Like, I don't know. I don't know. And I think whether or not it's his performance or his dialogue, I can't connect to it. And that's a bummer. I mean, I like the running scene because that is, like, to me, the first time that I do connect to him is just like the joy of movement. Sure. Even though I do always get distracted by hearing somebody in the background be like, don't touch it too much. You'll go blind. I guess they're talking about their tail or their ponytail. But I was like, oh man, everybody was so horny when they were making this movie. I know. Uh, It's interesting because in a way, I feel like he was written to be a blank. Like he has that line where he's meeting the Navi and he's like, well, my cup is empty. Trust me. As in like, I don't know, I'm a big dummy. Or like when he's like narrating, you know, why he's even there to the video, he's like, I'm here doing science. You know, like he's he's written that to be dumb and to be right. sort of aware that he's dumb. And Sam Worthington has said the reason he thinks he even got cast in this part is because he didn't know what it was when he was doing a self-tape. And he had a bad attitude because he had not been getting a lot of jobs. He was, you know, famously like living in his car at this moment. Um, He was like a bricklayer basically in Perth. He like didn't, you know, go to school. He wasn't a trained actor. He, you know, had jokes that like he thought Chekhov was just a character from Star Trek. He didn't even know that Chekhov was like a writer. Uh, So when he's doing the self-tape for this job, he was in such a bad mood for, for it that when the script said that he was supposed to say yes, he didn't even want to bother saying yes. He was just like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> uh-huh. And there was something in his grunting and his like dismissiveness that James Cameron was like, yes, I want the character who's doing the least. And I don't think that that was a good choice. I don't think it was, especially when you look at like who also was up for this. You know, I mean, you know, we have like Matt Damon and Jake Gyllenhaal. That's what the studio wanted. And then Chris they Evans actually and- offered this to Matt Damon uh, and said they'd give him like 10% of the profits if he what? would do this instead of the Bourne movie. And he was like, no, I'm going to do the Bourne movie. So he missed out on $280 million. Wow. But I wonder if that would have actually been a good thing because here's the thing. Sam Worthington makes this movie. He's making these other movies. And it takes you out of making movies for a long time. I mean, the process of making this movie, the process of making all of his movies. And, you know, when you look at Chris Evans or Channing Tatum, uh, you know, Chris Pine, Chris Pratt, all these people who auditioned, not to say they would have gotten it or they were perfect for it, but all these actors have become big stars. Um, And this is a moment where you work on this movie for such a long time that you get taken out of the, you get taken out of the world. And if you don't kind of hit, that's it. But I also think this movie is a a weird time because it's also a time where we're trying to find the next Harrison Ford. Do you remember this? Like, oh, we're going to cast this guy who's like the star of Tron. That's our next. No. And I don't think anyone really found it. And I know you're going to make a face at me in a second, but with Chris Pine, like, oh, that's kind of what we want. We want this like light and fun, but also like Enchanting Tatum, I think follows in that. And I think Chris Evans now, like they're this new generation of, yes, they can beat the, you up, but they also are likable and fun. And for a while we were going for like humorless white dudes, primarily Australian white dudes. Um, yeah, there's that, just that flood of them. That just and, and some of them hit. I feel like unfairly got lumped into it. Like I actually think Garrett Headland 
has been good in movies that let him be good, mm-hmm. where they let him have a personality, but Tron didn't really. It, no. it, so it's like we took all these people who had potential, put them in a box office that was like bigger than chemistry, you know, something right. where that was like world first character 12th. Right. And yeah, then exactly. we're like, how come they didn't hit as a star? And you're like, well, you didn't give him anything interesting to say for but one. My question is if you put Matt Damon in this role, does this movie get better? Yeah, and my, I think it does. Do I think you? it gets a lot better. And I yeah. think there's something egotistical on James Cameron's part to say, I don't want someone taking the shine away from this movie. James Cameron wants the star of this movie to be the movie. Yeah. And I think casting an unknown, because I think that there's probably a part of James Cameron, and I'm psychoanalyzing here, where he goes away and people talk about Leo and Kate. He goes away and people talk about Linda Hamilton. He goes away and people talk about Sigourney Weaver, right? And this, by putting an unknown there, people go away and they go, Avatar. Like, you know, it's like there's something, you know, there's something there where you can't just go, oh, it was only good because of those people. But the characters he's created in the past are iconic to a certain degree. I mean, they are. Fucking they are, you know. Uh, But I would argue that the writing hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten worse. It just is the delivery method of those lines. I mean, I heard this story and I want to emphasize heard. And I want to emphasize story because I can't no, this remember is all good. Told gossip, me this get story. it out there. This is just gossip. Probably not true, but it's a story that I believe is true without even it having to be true. Do you know what I mean? Which is that after Avatar came out, James Cameron had a meeting with Sam Worthington and was like, let's talk about the sequels. And Sam Worthington is probably thinking, well, man, I just starred in the biggest movie of all time. I'm hoping to up my contract and make some bank. And James Cameron basically put down two scripts in front of him. And he was like, here's a script where you're in it. Here's a script where your character's not in it. I don't really care which one I make. Let's just agree on like a price you'll do this for. And basically, like, I can make it with you. I can make it without you. I don't really care. Now, here's the thing. Do you think that they were actually full scripts? Or that was like, (laughs) because there's a part of me that goes like, because Cameron's like, oh, I I, I didn't, it wasn't a no brainer to make a sequel to Avatar. It's like, bullshit, dude. You knew, like, I remember that was the talk of the town from the minute it came out. I was like, and there's five more coming. You know, like it was, it was like, we are now in the era of James Cameron only makes this. I know. And and I think that in a way, part of my part of my negative sheen around Avatar is because of that is because I feel cheated of the other James Cameron things he could be doing besides returning to Pandora. This is like the last thing I wanted to do is just like keep going back to this world. I want him to invent something else. It's not like the the world is so beautiful and expansive, but I have a feeling the stories you're going to tell in those world in that world is basic. It's a. I, and I don't know. It's like, do we need to revisit it? Is like, because it's like we are revisiting it because we love the world. And I know you've seen the sequel, so we can't get into it, but it's a tricky thing. It's like, okay, I don't know. I don't know what, like, is there more to be said? And I will say that after watching this first movie, if you never made another one, I would have been like, great, wonderful. Like I don't need like yeah. I don't need more said. It was great. It was it's a standalone film. It doesn't feel like it's part of something larger. You know, yes, it is beautiful and it is 
expansive, but I don't need to go back. That's honestly how I feel too, you know? And so, and so to me, it almost feels like James Cameron has been trapped in the Avatar world. Like I want to get him off of Pandora, but I don't think he is going to get off Pandora. But that said, I was trying to think about maybe what one of the the great lasting impacts of Avatar would be. And I had two thoughts I wanted to throw at you. Okay. The first one is, this is in essence a movie about catfishing, right? Like Uh. this tiny puny guy shows up on this planet in the body of a, a hotter, taller guy and is like, fall in love with me here. You know, like fall in love with this like other version of me that you would actually look at twice. And then like at the end when she's like finally holding his like human form, he looks so small and pitiful and sad. And they're like, we got to figure out how to get you back into that big hot body. So catfishing this movie, I would say very much about that. I love you. Uh, You're perfect. Now change. (laughs) And the second one is there's a concept that this movie says that now I feel like I hear all the time, all the time linguistically. And it's this idea of connecting to someone by saying, I see you or I, I feel seen, yeah. you know, like that is such a thing. Like I see you, I see you, I feel you, I hear you, I see you. And that is what this movie really is. Like that's the Navi's big statement to each other over and over again. I see you, I see you. And is, did Avatar plant that in our culture where this is now how we talk and, and connect empathetically? No, I don't think that Avatar planted a goddamn thing in our culture. Like I don't, <laughs> like I don't, I, I, I don't think it did because like, What this movie should have done, I think, in many ways, is bring a birth of more films like this. And I think what you said was right. It killed it. Right? It it, like and and you can't top it, right? And it feels weird for him to go back to it because it does feel like the idea of like we're gonna see the best 3D ever. It's like, so 3D only exists for James Cameron to make this movie. Okay, I mean, is that like right? If that's the thing, it's weird. It's like he's done it so good that no one else attempts. 3D can be good. I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting. It there's something about it, and I'm sure Avatar: The Way of Water will be tremendously successful because people will leave the theater the same way I left the theater originally, and the way I felt watching it on an iPad, not with 3D goggles on, not with the best sound, being like, oh my gosh, what a fun ride. Like, I'm sure the last 90 minutes of, I'm sure it's, you know, three and a half hours is going to be like the best action sequences and any issues that I have with the beginning of it where it's probably too talky, I'll walk out and be like, whoa, that was, but that was great. And I leave on a high note and I'm on my way. It's the same way the American graffiti like gives us that kind of like, oh, and this person died and this person did this, that postscript that makes you leave seem like seeming like you saw a better movie than you actually saw, where you actually were connected to characters. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious. I'm really excited to talk to you about the new one when it when it shows up. But I'm also kind of curious to talk about this movie with you in terms of the movie we just did, which is The Black Swan, which is a movie that I was going on and on and on about how wonderful the visual effects were in that film because it was so subtle. And I was thinking about like what these kind of movies have in common. Like they're very much about, you know, adopting a different persona. Who are you? Who do I know who I am? Who am I really when I'm imagining myself to be something that I'm not? Even even like how he says here. It's hard to believe it's only been three months. I can barely remember my whole life. I don't know. 
no hand anymore. And yet it does it with just like overwhelming, overwhelming video effects. It's like, what if, what if we did like kind of the opposite of the black swan approach? But from the beginning, I was looking at this movie, trying to find the depth in it because I feel like it's so close to adding even more layers. Okay. Well, well, okay. Well, think about this. So like the basic premise of Avatar is like, here's human Jake and then he becomes blue Jake, right? But then there's these other layers to it where it's like, he is not even supposed to be there. It's supposed to be Tommy. So it's like, he's inside of Tommy's body to be this blue guy, right? But then it's also, there's this other layer on top of it, which is like, he's... He's pretending to be his brother, his and his brother pretending to be this blue guy. But then the blue guy is pretending to be, you know, the friendly scientist working for Sigourney Weaver, but he's also secretly a spy for Colonel Miles, the Marines. So it's like he's stacking all of these fake personas on top of each other, you know? Right. Is he the blue guy spy? Is he the blue guy legitimate hero who's like being an anthropologist? Is he Tommy's DNA? Is he his DNA? Like, who is he really? And with all of those levels that I feel like this movie could be about, I don't feel like it's really about any of them at all. And that's frustrating. Yeah, I I buy that. I totally hear what you're saying. It's like, like, I wonder, and I guess as you're saying this, if you take the big magic trick part away, if you take the 3D away, does anyone care about this movie? Even with the amazing world, or is it just another one of these movies that we've seen a million times just done a little bit better. If you take away the big part of this, what are we connecting to? Yeah, because it feels like it's not so much a film to me as it is a statement in a way. You know, like... Right. I can do this or look at this, right? Yeah. Look at this and also protect the environment. But those are both statements. They're not stories. Right. You're right. And, And I think the characters truly are just placeholders for ideas it's like they're hitting the beats of what we understand it's it's as if i'm explaining to you the movie it's like okay so we got this guy and you know his brother was smart he was just a kind of a grunt he gets pulled into this thing and he's just going to be like an ass kicker and then all of a sudden he meets us the the people he's supposed to be protecting and he falls in love with them and you know and and that and this is what it is you know and then they fall in love and she loves him and but then he's got to like take down his boss you know it's like it's very much like it it feels like it is placeholders but then when we're talking about Black Swan. We were talking about how what you bring to it, like, oh, what are the notes? Thelma and Louise, I think about that too. Like, how do you make this deeper? How do you get this more? Who's fighting for like what the emotional depth is? And maybe that's something that Cameron won't allow. Yeah, because instead, I feel like watching this movie, I'm mostly just waiting for the big battle at the end. I'm like, okay, show me what you got. Can't wait for that. And then getting distracted by, you know, little details, like, like him trying to jump on his dragon thing and being like, I see you, bro, you know, or like, I got it, man. Like, and just kind of cracking up at that, like watching people, watching him wrestling a dragon and thinking like, man, this really feels a lot like I'm witnessing a frat party at Yale or something. Like, what's happening? They're like, yeah, get on that dragon, make the bond, baby, make the bond. And so there's part of me that wants to say, I enjoy this movie in moments like the just little seconds of it that kind of make me giggle. You know, like people talking about tree hugger crap all of the time. Or like Neytiri trying to hook him up with other women who like are better singers or better hunters. And he's like, no, 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 I don't need a singer. 
I don't need a hunter. I need you, baby. But then I, I, I think I'm, you know what? I wonder if it's like, this is my, if this is my deepest level about it, which is I'm annoyed that all of this money was spent without any real attention to the story. It just feels like such a waste. It feels like somebody burned a stack of money in a part, you know, to but not this care is, but, more. But this is like my issue. And I, I'm going back and forth because I just now just ripped on it. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's it's placeholders. But when I watch it, it goes down smooth. It's like, yes, I can sit here and critique it. And this is the thing that I really wrestle with in this movie. It's a constant push-pull because he's a master filmmaker who knows how to direct action, how to tell a story and give you an amazing movie theater experience. And that to me feels like it might outweigh something larger. Like, and I think we are putting a lot on him because there aren't like, there aren't necessarily iconic things. Yes, I see you, but it's not, it doesn't feel like we get that line or those moments that we get from his other films. We, we, it's much more like it's the reason why I hate the ride at Disney World. There's two rides at Disney World. One called Flight of Passage, where you get on the back of one of the flying creatures. It's one of the most amazing rides I've ever been on. You literally feel the creature breathing in between your legs as you're riding on it. It's phenomenal. And then there's one, and they're both James Cameron created. And this is how I feel about Avatar, where he's like, oh, well, what if we make Pirates of the Caribbean? but nothing happens. You get on a boat and you just sail in a circle and you like hear some singing of Navi and you look at stuff, but literally nothing happens. And I was sitting there and going like, fuck this ride. Like, I don't need to like, okay, like, what is this? It's not, it, it's a small world has more of a plot or a connection to it. It's like, it's just, he's so enamored I think that's like part of it. It's like you, it's like hating a smart kid for being smart. It's like, yeah, you did it right, but you're also a dick. Like, you know, it's like, you, like it's like this weird thing that I'm wrestling with where it's like, yeah, I, I did enjoy it, but there's so much I don't like about it. And I can't reconcile that. That's what I'm I'm fighting with. Maybe that's what I think scares me about this movie or scares me about my reaction to this movie is maybe what I should say, which is... I've always looked up to Cameron, you know, as, as a leader, as somebody, you know, who says things I deeply agree with, like in the, in this Ted talk where he's talking about just like the power of curiosity. So what can we synthesize out of all this? You know, what's the, what are the lessons learned? Well, I think number one is curiosity. It's the most powerful thing you own. Imagination is a force that can actually manifest a reality. And the respect of your team is more important than all the laurels in the world. I have young filmmakers come up to me and say, you know, give me some advice for doing this. And I say, don't put limitations on yourself. Other people will do that for you. Don't do it to yourself. Don't bet against yourself. And, and take risks. Uh, NASA has this, has this uh, phrase that they like, failure is not an option. But failure has to be an option in art and in exploration because it's a leap of faith. And no important endeavor that required innovation was done without risk. You have to be willing to take those risks. So that's the thought I would leave you with. 
is that in whatever you're doing, failure is an option, but fear is not. And so being caught in like being having to take this back seat in his to his journey to Pandora, you know, having to go to Pandora because it's where he wants to go. It kind of makes me feel like I'm in the back seat of my dad's car and my dad is maybe drunk and swerving and is out of control and I don't trust where the car is going anymore. Like I'm scared of what the guy in charge is of is doing and I've lost my ability to feel like I will go where you want to go. It, it hits me weirdly personal. I'm surprised at my personal reaction to this. Yeah. By the way, my I, dad never drove drunk. I feel like I needed to Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not getting that. No, yeah. and I, I, I think it's sort of like, yeah, this is a tricky movie. It's a tricky movie to talk about because there's so much there and there's so much not there. And I think it's a magic trick in the sense that it's covering up something. I also feel like we're like, we want more from you. We're like, yes, we trust you. And you did trick us. Like you tricked us. Maybe this is how I'm going to compare it. It's it's the time, it's the season. And again, if there are any children in the room, please leave. It's the way that we treat Santa Claus. We create this amazing thing like, oh my gosh, there's Santa, he's going to bring you gifts and 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 all this sort of stuff. And he's really not there. There's no there there, right? It's like, it's a, like, and we do all this lying and we create this thing. But like when you start to pull it apart, it makes no sense. But it's such a beautiful thing. And then it eventually like we rip it away and it's like, oh, why were we lying? We oh, we only try to talk honestly to our kids and now we lied to them. It's like, it's just, there's something about it that's like, it's magical, it's fun, it's cool. It, but don't ask us too many questions about it. As my kids ask me a million questions about Santa, I'm like trying to like, I just justify it by being quick. You know, it's like, but then you rip it away and you're like, oh, what? why did they lie about that? Was that special? Was that, did I need that? I don't know. Am I am I forcing an Empire State of Mind comparison to to drive it into Santa Claus at this point? But I, I don't know. There's something about it that is so Ouch. fun and magical. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm wrestling with. I really am. And okay, I, well, I, yeah, I believe that we should have Santa Claus. I'm not one of those parents either. I'm just saying that like it's messy. <laughs> well, OK, while the kids are out of the room, can I read you an excerpt from the script of Avatar that has more details on the sex scene between Jake and Neytiri that we don't oh, get to God, see in the film. Oh, God, sure. <clears throat> okay. Neytiri. Kissing is very good, but we have something better. She pulls him down until they are kneeling, facing each other on the faintly glowing moss. Neytiri takes the end of her cue and raises it. Jake does the same with trembling anticipation. The tendrils at the ends move with a life of their own, straining to be joined. Macro shot. The tendrils intertwine with gentle undulations. Jake rocks with the direct contact between his nervous system and hers. The ultimate intimacy. They come together into a kiss and sink down onto the bed of moss and ripples of light spread out around them. The willows sway without wind. And the night is alive with pulsing energy as we dissolve too. <gasps> Later, she has collapsed across his chest, spent. He strokes her face tenderly. Jake. Neytiri. You know my real body is far away sleeping. She raises up, placing her fingertips to his chest. Neytiri, this body is real. The spirit is real. End scene. Beautiful. Now that's art. <laughs> Apparently it's on the DVD, but I, I haven't seen it. Uh, um, yeah, I, I guess my question to you is, who are we to judge 
are, should we be holding people to a higher standard? Like we said, you look at James Cameron as a leader. Should we be looking to him as a leader or should we just say like, hey, you did advance the art form. What I'm bummed about is, but now you're not advancing the art form. You're just making, you're doing a, I wouldn't say a retread. Maybe he's playing with high frame rates, which he I is. have an issue with. And But it's like, that's not, I don't know if high frame rates is moving the needle forward. I didn't like it when, um, when Peter Jackson did it for the, the oh, Hobbit Oh, it's terrible stuff. in The Hobbit where you can see their beard glue. It, the only yeah. time time frame rate, I think, in my opinion, has ever been good is in uh, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. I kind of want to call it Billy, Z- Billy Zane's long halftime walk. I love that. But because that is so much about a soldier with PTSD being in a situation full of like fireworks and spangles and being really kind of overwhelmed by things, high frame rate works perfectly for that. But not so much when you're looking at hobbits eating bread. Yeah, I like, and so I wonder if there's an, we talk a lot about canceled directors, right? Not we, but population, like Woody Allen, Roman Polanski. And there's something that in that debate, which is very interesting where it's like, well, do you have to separate the artists from their work? What they did is terrible, but can we actually enjoy what they made? And why? Because we actually enjoy their work so much. And in a weird way, Cameron is also offering that to us as well. He's saying, like, you love me. I make good stuff. And we, as the audience, are, but we want you to be better. Can you be better? Like, yes, all this, but better. Like, it's the way I think that people felt about George Lucas making those first prequels. It's like, that's the script? That's the story? Can't we? We love your world. Can you do more with it? And then when you find something like Andor, which, by the way, I really want to recommend to you. I think you would love it. Um, you're like, that's what we need to be doing. Or, or when Ryan Johnson does it, like, oh, right, we reinvented a little bit. And I feel like what we're what we're frustrated with with James Cameron is like, you are this person and you're making a movie that in the parking lot on the way home doesn't make any sense or it it doesn't hold up. And I feel like we want him to make something that feels richer than that. I don't care that I watch Vin Diesel jump a magnet truck into a helicopter because that's fast and furious. And I don't expect more. And I think Justin Lin knows how to deliver that action in a really fun way. But I do expect more from James Cameron, who's created movies that are arguably iconic films of the last 30 years. And yet we have James Cameron giving Michelle Rodriguez a space helicopter and turning it into a Fast and Furious movie for a few minutes. And yes. And casting Vin Diesel in the future Avatar movies. Although I will say Vin Diesel Wait, is not. Oh, OK. He's not in this one. He's not in this one. And neither is Michelle Yeoh. I was like spending the whole time squinting at, at blue and green people being like, but where are they? And they're not there. They're coming. But so he's, he's reaching to, it's like he is, it's like, it's like daddy's driving the car, but he wants to be in Fast and Furious. Oh, I should stop calling him daddy. It's like when you get uh, a friend who takes up cigars, it's like, okay, that's your new thing. And then you're like, (laughs) it's still, you're still smoking cigars, huh? Cool. Wait, it's funny you say that because one of the things people got so mad about at this film is how much Sigourney Weaver's doctor smokes. And they were like, what's a doctor doing smoking like that, especially in the future? Wouldn't she know better? And Sigourney Weaver was like, well, yeah, the whole point is that my character doesn't care about her human body. She only cares about living in her blue body. And that's why she's smoking. And also like the smoking was CG too. That's like one of the CG things you wouldn't even notice. She's holding a toothpick and then they just put a cigarette on top of it. I feel like he did a lot of weird 
weird things where like they played with people's hair and stuff like like again I think that I want to shout out to Giovanni Ribisi, who I think is actually doing a great job as Paul Reiser. And yeah, and like it's, it's, <laughs> it, and I, and by the way, I think it is like, I think it's unfair to say, oh, some of your movies are derivative of your other movies. I think you can make that case for Steven Spielberg when he makes a certain type of movie. I think you can make that case for Alfred Hitchcock. I think you can make that case for a lot of directors that they go back. Stephen King has made a whole career of redoing his own ideas again and again. I don't think that that, I think that, that often an artist wrestles with certain ideas. So I, I would hate to be like, oh, this is just a lamer version of that. I think, you know, unfortunately, maybe the world around him is changing too and he's not acknowledging it or he's like so confident in, like the reason why he cast Sam Worthington, he had this Australian accent. And he's like, well, we want an American. He's like, well, he'll get rid of it hopefully by the time we start shooting. There's like a confidence like it will happen. It's like, oh, we'll make Kate Winslet not be able to breathe underwater for longer than David Blaine. It's like, you know, so there is this like cockiness. It's like, I can make anything work. And you know, when they say, oh, were you afraid that Avatar was going to fail? He's like, no, if I like my movies, they're going to be great. So there is this like energy to him where maybe he's less nervous. He's so confident. Like I made the biggest movie of all time. I made the biggest movie of all time again. And then oddly again. And now I'm going to make whatever I want. And I don't have any, it's sort of like he's got nobody reining him in. And in a way that maybe amplifies some parts of his stuff that aren't as strong and maybe that could come in casting that could come in writing uh across the board and when i look at like the cast of the way of water i'm like all these people are back okay i guess that uh all right i did not know that we're gonna see all these characters once again and that again it just makes me like okay but i'll go there and i'll leave it and i'll go amy it was fucking awesome <laughs> well, good. We'll have that conversation. I'm looking right. forward to it. And I do want to like kind of tip this. If people want to see a film that is Avatar, but is also the ap- opposite of Avatar at the same time, there's a film that I'd wager 50-50 odds on is going to get an Oscar nomination. It's a documentary called The Territory. It, mm. It's about like um, it's about like an indigenous people in Brazil at fighting the Brazilian government to keep their rainforest. And it basically is this movie. And it actually has like a very cool hero, like the hero of the story in this documentary, his name is uh, Bidate Uruuawau. He's like this teen kid who's like, okay, I can figure out how we're going to use the internet to fight uh, Bolsonaro, because this is back when Bolsonaro was still in charge. And it's like, it's a really cool documentary. And I had to do a QA and a for it. And like, the people just stood up and gave Bidate like a standing ovation. Like he is, he is the real Jake Sully, who's actually from there. No, I guess he's the real Neytiri. Let's call him the real Neytiri. But he is uh, um, but that said, do you want to hear some reviews? Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, obviously this movie made a gigantic impact on our culture as being a phenomenon. But were people, uh, yeah, were people hesitant about it? Were they, they have these same issues? Yeah, I'm going to read two. One takes issue with it on film grounds. The other one takes issue with it on moral grounds. So here we go. Uh, my beloved Stephanie Zacharek, she wrote, The problem with taking 15 years to bring audiences the future of filmmaking is that someone else is bound to get to the future before you do. Clearly, Cameron has looked everywhere for inspiration, nature, art, 
the Spencer's gift catalog. Uh, he takes all of this We Must Be One with Nature business very seriously, so seriously that he doesn't seem to realize that one of the Navi's sacred communal rituals, as he's dramatized it, looks an awful lot like a Beverly Hills yoga class. For a movie that stresses how important it is for us to stay connected with nature, to keep our ponytails plugged into the life force, Avatar is peculiarly bloodless. It's a remote control movie experience, a high-tech wish you were here scribbled on a very expensive postcard. You don't have to be fully present to experience Avatar. All you have to do is show up. And then Jay Huberman wrote, Worse, the viewer is encouraged to cheer when uniformed American soldiers are blown out of the sky and instead root for a bunch of naked tree-hugging aborigines led by a renegade white man on a humongous orange polka dot bat. Let no one call so spectacular an instance of political correctness run amok entertaining. By the way, you just said something that I finally put together. Because he's blue, we don't look at it. It is a white savior movie. Oh, yeah, I guess so. He's just blue. I never thought. It. Yeah, but he's a. It's a white. It's like we need the white guy to come <laughs> and save the day because he literally is like, hey, why don't you just get all tribes together? You know, it's like he like he literally pulls it all. Like uh-huh. he's the one who figures out how to defeat this occupation that they've had, and it wasn't like like it's not through like oh we figured out this type of thing. Yeah, or I, I know. know exactly how the military works on the inside and here's how we attack it. Yeah, no, it's like, it's really weird. And the, by the way, the ending is incredibly rushed. It's like, oh, and then they left the planet. Really? Okay, sure. Uh, you know, but, and then the morphing of everybody getting sucked into different bodies and, ay, ay, ay. Um, Amy, I will say this. This is probably one of the most conflicted movies I've ever talked to you about because I really vacillate. If you talked to me about this movie last week, I would be 100% on your same page and I would be harsher on it. Now going through it, I'm like, I like the performances for the most part. Well, I mean, I'm basically saying I like everybody but Sam Worthington. And why am I beating around the bush on that? I, I think that the world is amazing. I watch it not in 3D. I watch it on an iPad. I was completely engaged. I found the action sequences to be more engaging than most of the CGI battles I've seen in recent memory. And I think he knows how to direct action really well. I think that's something that Steven Spielberg was complaining about in a lot of like these CGI things where it gets so messy because it can. And I think that there's a res- tremendous restraint in the sugary sweetness explosion of this movie. Well, fair enough. So where should we go from this? Well, I mean, look, it is the holiday season. And, you know, besides doing our Avatar special episode, which will be hard for me to figure out when to do because two children trying to bring them to the theater and they're not going to, maybe I could bring, could I bring them to Avatar? I don't know. Uh, but yeah. uh, it, maybe. Um, but uh, besides all that, um, I think we need to go for a holiday classic. Every year we kind of try to pick one. It was It's Wonderful Life, Home Alone. And I think this year it's very appropriate to uh, basically pick my holiday favorite, Die Hard. <laughs> oh, really? Is You're finally throwing it down. It's finally time? It is finally time. And let me tell you, Amy, this is coming from a person who has a Hans Gruber advent calendar. Every day he falls another floor until he falls 25 stories to his death. And that's how I know it's Christmas is when Hans Gruber hits that ground. That is torture, that poor man. Take a listen to the trailer. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. I missed you. Instead, 
He's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. There is brilliant. Because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants. Think, damn it, think. Is to be a hero. Where's Howie? Hey, Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> God. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Die Hard. If you don't own it, what are you doing with your life? Uh, I can't wait to talk about this movie with you. It's available wherever you get your movies. Uh, and definitely check out your library streaming services. Uh, Amy, what a pleasure to crack into Avatar. And I cannot wait to talk to you off mic. Well, I don't even want to talk to you off mic. I want to talk to you on mic about Avatar 2 because the reviews have been so interesting to me. <laughs> I cannot wait. I am uh, exploding with fish in anticipation. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.